You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Isn't the point of traveling to get away from it all? To feel the best you've ever felt? Then maybe you should check out Aruba. You'll spend your time relaxing on cool white sandy beaches and floating in healing blue water. You'll meet locals brimming with gratitude for an island that redefines what a paradise can be. When your trip comes to an end, you won't need another vacation because you just had the vacation. That's the Aruba effect. Plan your trip at aruba.com. In the time it takes me to say this sentence, lightning will strike thousands of times around the world. It occurs on Earth between 40 to 100 times a second. Most of the time, lightning just puts on a a really magnificent show, but it also ignites wildfires, and be careful, sometimes it can be fatal. You'd think that in the time since Ben Franklin flew his kite, we'd know everything we need to know about atmospheric electricity, but we're still figuring out which storms produce it. And now, in some places, like the Arctic, lightning is becoming more frequent. What do we still not know about lightning, and how are lightning storms changing? I'm Molly Bentley. And I'm Seth Shostak. This is Big Picture Science, produced at the SETI Institute. This episode is Like Lightning. Later in the show, you'll hear our interview about what lightning is with atmospheric scientists Jonathan Martin and Steve Ackerman. But among the questions I asked them was what they say to the guy sitting next to them on the airplane who asks what they do for a living. Everybody has a story about lightning. And so if I were to sit next to somebody on a plane and they asked me and I didn't want to talk, I would not say I study lightning. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. And lightning lights it up. Lightning lights it up. And it is true. I think I think everybody has that story that they remember. You may have such a story. I have such a story. And here's another. Hi, my name is Thomas Yedeker. I live in Oakland, California. I was with two of my brothers in Miami, Florida, which is where we grew up, uh, on a field where we normally did our track workouts during the, uh, the 10th through 12th grades. So a few years ago quite a few years ago. (laughs) We had stopped for a few minutes, standing in a circle to decide what we were gonna run next, and this lightning bolt came down. I'm Chris Davis, MD, Assistant Professor of Emergency Medicine at Wake Forest University. So people kind of describe all sorts of sensations when being struck by lightning, which often begins before they're even struck. So there's a few interesting phenomena that people may have heard of before called St. Elmo's Fire, where you can actually see this blue haze around things before, in the moments before they're struck, which has to do with the the building electrical charge. People often will describe smelling ozone um, and often hearing a ringing in their ears or hearing buzzing uh, coming from 
either their eardrums or metal objects of zippers. They might see sparking on the zippers around their um, on their clothing. What does ozone smell like? Well, it's often the smell of if you have some electrical fire or you know, electrical device that's shorting out or the motor burning out, you can smell this kind of odd smell. Um, it's almost a little bit acrid, a little bit sweet. And then typically people will describe just an overwhelming you know, flash or brightness and then almost instantly, like deafeningly loud, um, you know, crashing. When the bolt came down, what I remember was it felt like it was a stick of dynamite over my head because the sound was just enormous. We were all knocked down to the ground. I mean, literally knocked everyone down on the ground. Some came to quicker than others. And do you remember what it was like when you came to? I do. I remember that we were, it was sort of dizzy and sort of like a buzzing sound. And we looked at a few of each other and our hair was standing up from, I guess, the electricity. Fortunately, there was someone that was actually on the field away from us. And he was the one that came over and saw the lightning bolt hit us right in the center of the circle that we were standing in. I think that's probably one of the reasons that we survived because there was eight of us that took the bolt as opposed to one of us. So it really depends on, on the scenario of what happened when they were struck, but it can range from people that are wandering around kind of dazed and they can't hear. Um, some people may be unconscious laying on the ground with burns. Uh, they may have had their clothing literally blown off of their bodies or shoes blown off of their bodies, or they may just be um, having a headache, ringing in their ears and some other kind of minor symptoms we sort of were in a panic of what to do next. So we decided that we were going to run to the car, which was about 50 yards away. But the funny thing is, as we were running to the car, we ran in a zigzag motion, thinking there was going to be another bolt. So your panic was you might be hit again. That's correct. You know, there are definitely a lot of myths surrounding lightning strikes. You know, the biggest one we often hear is, and I'm sure you've heard before, lightning never strikes twice, right? That couldn't be further from the truth. There's a lot of places that get struck by lightning very frequently. You know, for example, the top of the Empire State Building has been a lightning research facility, and uh, it gets struck by lightning very frequently. So, you know, you're not safe just because lightning is just struck there. An ambulance finally came, and uh, we all got in the ambulance. I actually remember that my twin brother sort of faked like he had injuries, so they put him on a stretcher. He would do something like that. He always does something <laughs> like that. And uh, we got to the hospital, and uh, they were checking everyone out. And then a newspaper person came in and asked, you know, was anyone killed? And they said no. And he walked down and he said, there's no story here. <laughs> the odd thing about this whole lightning bolt story is that it was a clear blue sky on that particular day. All you could see were white clouds in the horizon. Literally a bolt out of the blue. Thomas, where did the, where did the lightning come from if there were no storm clouds? That's why I took a weather class in college. I had to find out. And what the uh, professor explained to us is that even though it looks it's as if there's no clouds up there, it's called an anvil cloud. So from what you saw on the horizon was the clouds, but they go up 30,000 feet, they come over your head, and what appears to be a blue sky is there's a cloud way up there. But to have a bolt out of the blue come down, I always joke that was my chance for an epiphany, but I missed it. <laughs>
there are some recommendations of what to do if you feel that a strike is imminent. So if you see those hazes, smell those, um, those a funny smell, feel your hair standing up or hear that buzzing sound, anything where you feel like it's imminent that you'll be struck by lightning, what you want to do is try to eliminate uh, as much contact with the ground as possible. So there's a, a position called the lightning position, which involves getting your feet together, trying to crouch down on some sort of insulated surface if possible, like if you have a camping pad or a backpack, covering your ears and trying to crouch into a ball. It's a very uncomfortable position, but you're trying to limit your amount of contact with the ground to try to make yourself a less likely or less easy path for the lightning to travel through between the cloud and the ground. And can there be lasting effects from a lightning strike? And I ask this because there is a group of lightning strike survivors and they talk about the lasting effects the neurological and muscle injuries that they feel years later oh absolutely you know we do see there's a pretty high incidence of people reporting chronic headaches neuro uh, what we call neuropathic pain or pain like nerve pain that goes on for years later as well as some um sort of like psychocognitive effects as well that uh, people can report high rates of depression, anxiety, post-traumatic stress from the incident as well. So there's an array of conditions that can occur to people long-term, the most common being chronic headaches. The explosion of it and the sound reverberated in my mind for many hours and days, and I have to say even years later. You're kidding, like you still, you mean that you have had hearing loss or just that you can, you're sort of reliving it, you can, you're experiencing can, it? Yes, that's that's a good question. I can still hear that sound, that that enormous sound that filled my, my ears and my body as it struck us. When you are in, in a part of the country where there are lightning storms and there are rainstorms, how do you react? Do you feel like you start to get a little nervous about what's coming next? Your body is anticipating that lightning? I definitely uh, get nervous and I would definitely um, take cover for sure. Yeah, I, I feel vulnerable when, you know, when I hear the lightning. I feel like, uh, you know, it can happen. It can happen to me again. You know, this is one of those things that just makes me shiver because there are power lines that run through my backyard and I know that there are tens of thousands of volts up there just feet away. And these guys, you know, had a wire fall on them as it were. It's just scary. Yeah, as he said, the bolt came out of the blue. It's not as though it was raining or there was thunder. Any of the obvious clues that lightning was about to strike. Yeah, that makes it doubly scary. So Seth, you said you have a story about lightning. Yes, I do. Uh, you know, about two weeks away from graduation, this was when I was an undergraduate, one of my roommates was playing golf with a girlfriend, and they both got hit by lightning. They were knocked unconscious, but there was nobody around to revive them. And although she came out of it okay, he was killed. He was killed. What a tremendous tragedy that was. I'm so sorry, Seth. Chris Davis's job is to help prevent such tragedies. So let's hear more from his perspective as an EMT. Dr. Davis, together with being a professor at Wake Forest University, is the medical director at the National Center for Outdoor Adventure Education, where he provides training in wilderness medicine and emergency medical services. Being in the wilderness means being prepared for wild and woolly weather. So Dr. Davis gives instructions on how to treat lightning victims and how to avoid being hit. 
Dr. Davis describes what emergency responders see and uh, what they do when they arrive at the scene of a lightning strike, like on a golf course or on that field. We know in lightning strike victims, one of the key components is they actually stop breathing, which leads to them uh, with their heart stopping. So this is a scenario where we would want to check for breathing, check for a pulse, and provide CPR with rescue breathing. Frequently, people will think that you, know, you can't touch someone that's been struck by lightning because they still may be electrified or hold some sort of electric charge. And that is not true at all. So if someone has been struck by lightning, it is important that you do go touch them. You know, they, they may need CPR, they may need help breathing. So there's no risk of any residual charge being held in someone that's been struck by lightning. They're okay to touch. Did they feel hot? Typically not. You should, some of them will feel, um, you know, their body should feel just a normal temperature for the environment. They won't, they don't really take on a lot of thermal energy that you could feel. Now you said that a lightning strike can, can stop the heart. And why is that? Is that because you have this electrical charge that's going through the body that it kind of short circuits your electrical system? Absolutely. So the way that the things we've we found in patients that have been struck by lightning, both through um, sort of observational reports and, as well as some animal models, is that the electrical current can interrupt the conduction in the heart and lead to one of two things happening. One, it can cause a complete standstill of the electrical activity in the heart. Or two, it can cause an arrhythmia or what we call a, a funny rhythm in the heart where it's not doing coordinated contractions, kind of running haywire. So one of those two things will happen. Um, what happens after that, we'll see, is that often since the heart has an ability to kind of what we call automaticity or it beats on its own, that is usually temporary and will restart on its own. However, the electrical current travels very easily through our nervous system. So that will include our brain and our nerves, which can lead to a lot of injuries, but also will frequently paralyze this part of your brain that um, controls your breathing. So even though your heart may restart on its own, we often see that the breathing part of your brain takes a little bit longer to come back online. So what can happen to someone if they don't have any support with their breathing after they've been struck by lightning and their heart may have not been beating, but it may start back on its own, but eventually your blood will run out of oxygen in it and then your heart will stop again. So, so that's why we f it's so important for, for many patients to do some rescue breathing or help them breathe until their brain has time to kind of reboot, so to speak, and start breathing on its own once again. Chris, can you equate it with electrical voltage? Is it like getting an electrical shock? And if so, what would the voltage be? So that's a, that's a great question. They're similar in some ways and very different in others. So um, when we see patients that are electrocuted by like a high voltage alternating current power, uh, what it, it typically causes contraction of all the muscles, which can lead to someone if they touch a high voltage line, kind of their hand getting stuck to it and then getting you know a prolonged um, delivery of electrical current. Now, lightning has incredible voltage and amperage, so really anywhere from 30,000 to 110,000 amps, which is, is an absolutely a massive amount, but it really only is applied to someone over about 10 to 100 milliseconds, which you imagine is, you know, would be faster than anyone could, you could touch anything. So although it's an incredible amount of energy, it's applied over a very short period of time which is why the injuries and stuff we see are pretty different than a typical electrical shock that you'd have from like a high voltage power line or touching a, a household electrical wire. You said that it, you see a similar pattern, but some differences in a lightning strike. And, and again, what are those differences? 
So some of the differences that we'll see is, is number one, with a similar amount of um, amperage delivered to a person from a lightning strike versus touching a high voltage power line source, the mortality is lower. So, so number one, that's the thing. We'll see less frequently see very severe burns. That's, that's another thing as well. So contact with high voltage power sources causes really severe burns in many cases because the power will throw, flow through the body. And uh, with lightning, we often see the phenomenon of the having indirect contact or the lightning bolt will strike something else and then we'll have what we call side splash um, current delivered to you or the um, current can actually flow over and around the body and not take a direct path through the body so may result in much less injuries than you would with a contact with a power line where the current would most likely take a path through the person to the ground. That was my next question is when you come across lightning strike victims, um, why were they struck by lightning? Uh, what are the different scenarios? You know, in many cases, what we see is they were either the tallest thing around or next to the tallest thing around. So uh, typical scenarios we see in the wilderness are people on ridge lines, um, particularly in the mountains in the afternoon when thunderstorms are common. They often will say, you, know, you want to be up by 12 and down by 2 if you're climbing a mountain. So when you're above the tree line, up on high points, uh, that's a frequent scenario where people will be struck by lightning. Also, people on golf courses, because um, you're often either out in the open, perhaps holding a metal stick over your head, which is a, a pretty uh, likely scenario to be struck by lightning. Uh, or people will often huddle around a tree, which is the tallest thing around, which then the tree gets struck and therefore everyone around the tree gets struck. Oh, goodness. You said when you want to go up a mountain, you should go up by 12 and down by 2. I can imagine that because you want to avoid the heat and the sun, but what does it have to do with uh, thunderstorms and lightning? So we know in, our, uh, in the mountainous terrain, the thunderstorms are very common in the afternoon, particularly see in the, in the Rocky Mountains and a lot of these alpine areas. Um, weather in the mountains, typically, you know, what causes lightning is this warm, moist air moving upwards. And so in the mountains over the course of the day, the sun will heat up the warm, moist air in the valleys, which will then flow uphill across the mountains and generate thunderstorms in the afternoon. So as the sun heats the air during the day, that actually leads to updrafts in the mountains that create thunderstorms in the afternoon. And so people that spend times in the mountains will often notice that, you know, it's in this time of year in the late summer, it's very frequent to have lightning and thunder in the afternoons. That is fascinating. Well, finally, Chris, a reminder to everyone that being hit by lightning is still a rare occurrence, but you are in the business of making it even more rare. Remind us where to go and how to avoid being hit by lightning when we start seeing those flashes or hearing thunder. So absolutely. So the biggest thing is when the thunder roars, go indoors. So the safest place to be is inside a structure. The next best place to be is inside a vehicle. So a vehicle creates a effect like a Faraday cage. If you may think of going to the science museum and getting inside the ball with the, the lightning kind of going all around you. So it's actually the effect of the metal cage around you in the car, which causes the protection. So uh, a convertible or something with no top wouldn't be helpful. Where you'd want to avoid was being the tallest thing around. So in the middle of a field, if you're on a golf course or out on a soccer field or something like that, you know, your next best option would be to get into dense trees where they're kind of uniformly distributed and about the same height. You would not want to go underneath the only big tree in the field. That would be even worse than being in the middle of the field because now you're near the tallest thing, which can then get struck and then transfer current to you. Chris Davis, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here today with you.
Chris Davis is a medical doctor and assistant professor of emergency medicine at Wake Forest University and medical director for the National Center for Outdoor Adventure Education. Okay, we know those bolts in the sky are powerful, beautiful, if they don't cause injury, but what is lightning exactly? This episode of Big Picture Science is like lightning. This episode is presented by Chemists in the Kitchen by LabX, a YouTube video series spotlighting the power of chemistry and how science and food can bring people together. In each episode, real scientists walk you through things like making your own cheese at home, the chemistry behind souffles, methods for botanical infusions, the formula for perfect deep-fried chicken, and much more. It's a love letter to science, cooking, and individuality, with some great tips on how you can apply real scientific principles to your everyday cooking. Plus, it's just a lot of fun. Season 3 is airing right now, and you can catch up with every episode for free on YouTube by searching Chemists in the Kitchen or going to youtube.com slash labxnas. That's youtube.com slash labxnas. You know the old chestnut. Everybody talks about the weather, but no one does anything about it. Well, later we'll hear how human activity may be changing lightning storms. But for now, we're going to talk about the weather. And who better to get us grounded in the facts about lightning than two gentlemen who in their appearances on Wisconsin Public Radio are known as the Weather Guys. Well, I'm Jonathan Mott, and I'm a professor in the Atmospheric and Oceanic Sciences Department at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. I'm Steve Ackerman, Vice Chancellor for Research and Professor of Atmospheric Sciences at the University of Wisconsin. We will start with a story that they know and you know, but we could all use a refresher about. It was a June day in 1752 when Benjamin Franklin flew a wired kite high into a thunderstorm. Partway up the wire, he had tied a key. Then a jolt of electricity ran down the wire. Mr. Franklin touched his knuckle to the key and sparks flew from the key to his hand. Now, a few disclaimers. Ben didn't discover electricity, as many scientists already knew about it, and he wasn't the first person to propose that lightning bolts were electricity. Also, contrary to the story, a lightning bolt hadn't actually hit the kite. If it had, he probably would have been killed. But let's give Ben credit he had collected electricity from the atmosphere. With this experiment, he was the first to prove that electrical charges were being generated in those stormy clouds high above. By the way, he ran this daring experiment with his young son, William, in attendance, something that always kind of shocks me. Hey, Seth, Ben Franklin was able to store some of that electricity in what's called a Leiden jar. What is a Leiden jar, and how did he capture uh, lightning in a bottle, as it were. Well, he had to store the charge in Leiden jars, which were kind of invented in the 1740s or so, were a way to do that. And they just basically consisted of a, of a jar, a glass jar, with aluminum foil or metal on the inside and aluminum foil or metal on the outside. And, uh, you know, they would hold a charge. 
So aluminum foil can hold a charge? Well, you have two conductors, the aluminum foil on the inside and then on the outside, separated by the glass. And that's what today you would call a condenser or a capacitor. They're a standard component in any bit of electronics you have. So if you put a wire into that Leiden jar, a current of electricity would, would come out? Leiden jars were great for uh, you know parties or something, because if you touch the Leiden jar, indeed, uh, a spark would jump from you know, the jar to you. It was, it was just essentially a way of storing static electricity. Sort of like an early battery. Yes, sort of like an early battery, yes. Short-term battery. Well, let's find out more about those bolts in the sky. Gentlemen, most people know that it was Ben Franklin who established the connection between lightning and electricity. In simple terms, it seems that a lightning bolt is just a, a big spark. Is, is that accurate, uh, Steve? Yeah, I like to think of it as lightning is a huge electric discharge or spark uh, that results from vigorous motions that occur within a thunderstorm. And yeah, and I would just say that ever since Franklin flew his famous experiment, we've been studying lightning in many different ways. Well, I mean, to produce a spark, you know, you need to build up separately positive and negative charges, you know, in two places. And when that charge becomes large enough, you know, it breaks down maybe the air or whatever, and it can cause a spark. It just causes a short circuit, all right? Yeah, I mean, it's just charges that form within a storm. And because to get those charges, this is one of the distincting factors of uh, lightning uh, and thunderstorms, is you need both ice crystals and liquid water drops in the cloud. And the winds within the storm, the turbulence within the storm, cause the particles to run against one another, causing the electrification within the cloud. Well, wait a minute. Now, Jonathan, that sounds like what is producing this separation of charge is is just friction. You know, the wind's uh, blowing these uh, molecules around, and it's sort of like the friction, you know, on a cold, <laughs> cold winter night here. Not that there are that many in California, but when I shuffle my uh, feet along the uh, carpet, you know, I build up a static charge too. Or when I comb my cat, don't do that often either, but it's all just friction. Yeah, there's, there's a really good conceptual uh, comparison to be made there, that it is friction among particles. And of course, when you, you know, when you rub your feet around on the rug in your house and you touch a doorknob or you touch your cat's nose, which Seth, I know you wouldn't do because that's kind of semi-torture, but you can get a little discharge there. And um, those things are a function of the environment as well as the physical action of the rubbing objects. And so if your house is really dry, then the insulating characteristics of the air are lower than they would be when it's when it's a little bit more saturated or a little bit more humid as it is in the summertime. It doesn't work quite as well in the summertime. So there are also environmental conditions that determine how well charges can be separated. And it's true even in the thunderstorm. There's temperature differences from one level in the storm to the other have some bearing on charge separation. So it's a whole bunch of different things, but the friction among particles is really primary among them. Okay, so you're, you're actually the energy of the lightning bolt is just uh, due to the, I don't know, the energy in our atmosphere, the atmosphere moving around? That's exactly where that energy comes from. And it's like a gigajoule of, of uh, energy that's in a typical lightning strike, which is just an enormous amount of energy. My goodness, okay. So that, that's all been produced by the winds that shuffle the clouds along. But doesn't it depend on the fact that there's actually an atmosphere to conduct that spark? In other words, a, a medium for the spark to, to actually occur. The short circuit is sort of the equivalent of a wire. We're talking about high voltage here because you've got to overcome, if you will, the insulating uh, 
properties of the atmosphere, of the air, right? Yeah, that, that's exactly right. The air is a really good insulator. And so you really need to build up a real big uh, charge separation um, so that when finally that channel begins for the lightning to flow through to uh, neutralize that charge difference between the positive and the negative charges, you get that huge energy discharge. And, and John listed it in gigavolts. I like to think of it in as a lightning bolts, the temperature of those things are five times the temperature of the sun. So that shows you how much energy is being discharged in a, in a common way that we all experience with regard to sunshine. Steve, what does your research actually uh, seek to accomplish? So a lot of the research that I deal with is from the satellite. So Wisconsin is known as the birthplace of weather satellites. A lot of that research occurs here uh, in Wisconsin. I'm usually looking at uh, global cloud studies. Uh, there is a group within our building where uh, they're making observations now of lightning from satellites. So that was something recent that the National Weather Service, NASA, and NOAA worked together to put that on. Um, and so that's helping us understand, again, the frequency of lightning that's occurring, as well as the prediction of uh, trying to forecast whether or not we're going to get lightning bolts in the next 30 minutes, half an hour, or hour or so. Well, I got to say, you know, when I was a kid, I figured lightning was a very rare phenomenon because, you know, where I was living, it didn't happen every day. I mean, you know, every couple of months you might get a thunderstorm which had lightning. But when you look at these photos of the Earth made from satellites, particularly the movies, you see lightning happening all over the place. Yeah. I mean, wherever there's a thunderstorm, there is lightning. You know, thunder is generated by lightning. So anytime you see lightning, you, you, there is a, a thunderstorm. Uh, that's going on. How many do we get in a year? I'm, I carry around in my number there, it's like 3,000 lightning bolts per year in the U.S., and I think that was before um, the satellites were actually measuring it. What, what's the difference, Jonathan, between, you know, the kind of lightning bolt that you see in the cartoons, this sort of jagged line from a cloud to the ground, and what I think is called sheet lightning, where, you know, the cloud just sort of lights up. Uh, some of those different distinctions among lightning types are based upon what you can actually see and what's been somewhat obscured. I think sheet lightning or the, the, the one you described, Seth, where the cloud just illuminates, that's probably in-cloud lightning that's going on. So you can have these discharges and these buildups of charge separation within a single giant cumulus cloud, and so that the lightning bolt itself will discharge within the canopy of the cloud. And so you get this kind of illuminated cloud. And uh, that's one of the types, and it's the sheet lightning you talk about. Some people talk about heat lightning as the kind of lightning you see on a really hot summer day, but you don't hear any thunder because it's so far away. And that's because the storm is so far away that the sound waves don't make it to you, but the lightning is occurring with thunder in the location where it's occurring, just like it would if it was over your house. And you can kind of tell how far away a lightning bolt occurred by timing the difference between when you see the flash and when you hear the the thunder, right? I mean, every four seconds is about a mile because uh, sound is a lot slower than light. Steve, something else that Ben Franklin did, of course, famously, was invent the lightning rod and, uh, you know, to, to protect buildings and things like that. Maybe you can tell us sort of in general terms, how does a lightning rod work? So, yeah, when, when a lightning bolt is heading down to the ground, you really want it to try and direct where it's going to hit. And so a best way to do that is to put up a really good conductor, like a piece of metal, with a point on the end, so that when the lightning bolt comes down, it hits that lightning rod, 
and then there's a wire that'll take that energy down into the ground. So instead of hitting a building or uh, an individual, it hits the lightning and then gets dispersed that way without too much damage. Okay, so all, all buildings have lightning rods, I take it, these days. I think all tall buildings probably have it. We have a whole sequence of them on the top of our Yeah, building. we do. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> does that calm you in your work? I mean. <laughs> well, you know, it, it does calm me. But, you know, going back to, to the power of lightning and hearing it and being able to measure it, there's a, uh, there's a saying that the National Weather Service really pushes, and that is, when it roars, go indoors. So if you hear lightning, that means, I mean, if you hear thunder, there's lightning nearby, you have a chance of being hit. So you should go indoors and protect yourself. Well, Jonathan, what about in a plane? I was in a plane yesterday, and you can see lightning bolts, and they do occasionally hit planes. What happens? They don't hit them nearly as frequently as they would were they not equipped with these little tapered uh, metal ends to the wings. You've probably seen them before on the, on the flaps of the wings. Those are like the, the, almost the equivalent of, um, of uh, lightning rods for the airplane. So they do allow dissipation of charges that might strike the outside of the airframe. It's all metal. So all of that's going to be just rifling through. All that electricity is rifling through the metal. If it finds an easy way to get out, it has a lesser potential to do damage. I, I worry that it might fry the you know, avionics, the electronics that are necessary to fly the plane. We had that event some winters, summers ago, where that plane from Brazil on its way to Paris just disappeared over the Atlantic, right over the intertropical convergence zone. It might well have been a strike. Nobody knows what happened to that plane. Lightning, obviously, occasionally kills. It often starts forest fires. But it's actually a good thing for life, right? Because as we all learned in 10th grade, lightning fixes nitrogen in the soil. But I, I didn't know that the nitrogen in the soil was broken. So um, maybe one of you guys can tell me what it means to fix nitrogen and how lightning does that. That's a really good question. Uh, and it's related to the following way. There's a lot of nitrogen in the atmosphere, right? It's 78% of the atmosphere is made of nitrogen. But we can't use that and plants can't use that and plants need nitrogen, and that's why when you fertilize, you're putting nitrogen into the soil. So when lightning helps, it doesn't do it directly um, by making nitrogen within the soil. What happens is that charge is so powerful enough that it breaks the bonds of the nitrogen molecules that are in the atmosphere. And once that bond of the N2 is broken, the nitrogen uh, atom quickly bonds with oxygen in the atmosphere forming a nitrogen dioxide. And then lightning often has precipitation. Uh, that light nitrogen dioxide gets wrapped up in the rain. The rain brings that to the soil, and that's a form of nitrogen that the plants can use. So, in fact, the, the lightning is doing a little bit of chemistry on this otherwise inert nitrogen gas. Yes, exactly. Why doesn't uh, lightning accompany every storm? Is it, you know, just that the air is too moist and you're not going to get a, a breakdown? It's usually associated, positive and negative yeah, it's charges. associated more with the type of cloud. So like out in California, you get a lot of stratus precipitation. That's all liquid water. And so if you don't have that mixed phase of liquid water and ice, then you're not going to generate uh, lightning. They come in different sizes. They, they, and of course, none of the liquid can survive at temperatures below freezing. And so the temperature aspect of charge separation is taken out if it's all liquid. So yeah, it's really intriguing how it all works together. Well, finally, that it's clear to me that lightning is one of the most, you know, dramatic displays that you see in the course of your average day. I mean, you know, there, there's many things in nature that are surprising, but lightning is also somewhat, well, not maybe not the lightning, but the storm, and maybe it is the lightning, 
is also exhilarating. And I've heard people say, well, that's because it's producing ozone. And uh, you like ozone for whatever reason, and lightning may produce some ozone, and consequently you feel exhilarated during a storm. Am I making this all up, Jonathan? Somebody else is making it up. Uh, I don't know if you're making it up. You're just relaying it. You don't like ozone at all. It'll, it'll burn your lungs. So you'd know right away if you whiff too much ozone and you would not be happy about it. I think the reason why lightning is exhilarating is because it is so awesome. It reminds you that no matter what your troubles are that day or your successes, there are forces much larger than you at play. And you can either use that knowledge to blame them for your troubles or to remind yourself that no matter how successful you think you've been, you've still got more work to do. I find that to be an exceptionally important aspect of the human condition. And lightning really helps me to focus on that. And the only thing I would add to that uh, exhilarating statement by John is that in addition to all that energy and it's beautiful. I mean, the storms that they're in, it's just beautiful to watch. Yeah, I agree. Well, gentlemen, I have to say this has been a uh, shockingly good interview. Uh, <laughs> Thanks to uh, Jonathan Martin and to Steve Ackerman for speaking with us today. Thank you, Seth. It was a great pleasure. Yes, I very much enjoyed it. Thank you. Jonathan Martin is a professor in the Atmospheric and Oceanic Sciences Department at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Steve Ackerman is vice chancellor for research and professor of atmospheric sciences at the university. And now, how patterns of lightning may be changing in some parts of the world. My name is Peter Bienyek. I'm a research assistant professor at the University of Alaska Fairbanks and the International Arctic Research Center. Is climate change making lightning storms more frequent? This episode of Big Picture Science is like lightning. This episode is brought to you by Kia's first three-row all-electric SUV, the Kia EV9, with available all-wheel drive and seating for up to seven adults, with zero to 60 speed that thrills you one minute and available lounge seats that unwind you the next. Visit kia.com slash EV9 to learn more. Ask your Kia dealer for availability. No system, no matter how advanced, can compensate for all driver error and or driving conditions. Always drive safely. Weather and climate are not the same thing. Weather is the short-term atmospheric condition. Climate is the average weather over a long period of time. As they say, climate is what you expect and weather is what you get. But of course, changing long-term climate trends also changes the weather. I'm an atmospheric scientist by training. So that means I study meteorology, forecasting, and I'm also curious about how weather and climate will change in the coming years and decades out to the next century. Peter Bienick is a researcher and professor at the University of Alaska Fairbanks and the International Arctic Research Center. My work focuses primarily in Alaska, so in interior Alaska specifically. And here we've been very curious about how lightning is going to change just because it's so important for wildfire management in the summertime. Lightning is responsible for so many of our biggest wildfires. Although Alaskans feel as though the frequency of lightning has increased, 
past data collection about lightning in Alaska and across the Arctic generally has been spotty. Honestly, in terms of how it's changed in the past, that's been a very challenging question. And a lot of people have asked that question in Alaska over the since I've been up here in the last 17 years. How has lightning changed? Are we getting more of it? Because it feels like you know we're seeing more, and we, we've been getting more large wildfire seasons in recent decades, in the last 20 years specifically. But now an array of sensors in Alaska, a lightning sensor network, deployed in the 1970s has received upgrades, leading to improvements in coverage and accuracy, and now scientists are using those data that the network is collecting to forecast lightning activity. Lightning is very likely going to increase, perhaps double, even threefold, in the next century or so. And that's based on global climate models. Dr. Bienyuk describes how warmer temperatures, aside from posing a threat to Arctic ice, may also be changing atmospheric electricity. In interior Alaska, and even Arctic in general, we, we know that the climate model projections seem to indicate that we're going to have this warmer, wetter future, and kind of the interplay there of, you know, more heat, more humidity, that basically lends itself to more convection, more thunderstorms, and therefore more lightning. So when we look at these these global climate model projections for you know Alaska and around the Arctic, we do see this these increases in kind of those indicators that lightning is going to increase in the future. There's a, a sensor network. Uh, describe that network for us. This is a network that monitors lightning strikes. That's right. In Alaska specifically, back in the late 70s, they started kind of being curious, all right, where where are the lightning strikes? How do we count these things? So they put out these individual stations. They look for what when they see little, you know, little static, like if you listen to an AM radio when there's a thunderstorm, you can hear a little static and they can triangulate the locations of the lightning strikes. So they can triangulate the lightning strikes. Now, do the sensors have to get hit themselves or do they just register when lightning actually strikes the ground or an object somewhere? So they can detect when the lightning strikes somewhere. They don't have to hit the sensors. We've used modeling basically to try to come up with some ideas that, yeah, it looks like lightning has changed a little bit, but we don't, there's a lot of uncertainty on that. Does it also total the number of lightning events in the clouds? Yeah, so since 2012, it does actually quantify the in-cloud lightning, so the cloud-to-cloud and the cloud-to-ground lightning. Before, it was only the cloud-to-ground strikes. You collect the data on lightning strikes on the ground and the cloud events as well, and then you feed that into a computer climate model, is that right? That's correct. And and typically how most myself and other researchers have done it is we kind of come up with some indicators of things that are related to lightning, like, you know, surface air temperature. Specifically, we're interested in like how unstable is the atmosphere. So so we looked at, at things like convective available potential energy is one of those things. That's a measure of stability in the vertical. So you know that the the air will will rise more or less rapidly if it's a bigger number, basically. And you can develop kind of some statistics using those. So so you know how much precipitation amount or temperature is correlated with X amount of lightning. So you can come up with basically draw trend lines along there. And then you, you can feed in the model data to kind of come up with estimates of lightning strikes, basically from uh, individual global climate models. So when you talk about the air rising quickly, that is what warm air does. Yeah, basically more surface heating is kind of the the key element here. So if you get in the summertime, it gets warmer, we get more 
uplift. And then, of course, at the same time, if we happen to have more moisture, because you know warmer air can also hold more moisture um, in the future, then you really have the recipe for more thunderstorm activity. Your work suggests that lightning strikes could double in the Arctic. Yeah, well, specifically for Alaska, but other studies have also indicated, especially in kind of Alaska and adjacent territories, doubling, even tripling is possible based on global climate model simulations. And Peter, why does that matter? What are the effects of having more lightning and and why study this? The big reason here is just in the summertime, it's in the boreal zone, we get these wildfires that can crop up. The biggest fires and most of the area burn that happens is from lightning strikes actually. And fire is a natural part of the the boreal forest regime, I should say. But if you get more and more fire, you know, that that does start impacting whether or not the boreal forest zone is like a carbon sink or a carbon source, and then you start getting feedbacks. And there's other elements of that feedback. But lightning is a very important player in the boreal forests for wildfire. And so what you're saying is that when you have those fires, um, they release that carbon that is trapped within the, the forest, and that is a problem. Yeah, that, that, that's a, one of the potential impacts, for sure. Peter, could you compare a boreal forest with a tundra? Because, of course, in the tundra, there isn't that much that burns. You have maybe some low shrubs and things like that. Uh, but it sounds like the boreal forest is different, and that can burn. Yeah, well, sure. So, as you said, the, the, the tundra really is much lower plants closer to the ground things like shrubs and mosses, whereas the boreal forest is kind of the stuff that you think of, like the big, the, the pine trees, the spruce trees, you know, that, that's kind of the, the realm of the boreal forest. The more lightning strikes, the more fires set by lightning and possibly the release of more carbon. And then you have something that's called a positive feedback loop, because the more carbon we put into our atmosphere, the warmer our average temperatures become. And then you just tend to it just continues. We just continue to cook the earth. Yeah, that, that's certainly one one possible element of the feedback. Of course, there's other confounding factors of the feedback there too, including you know how much area has burned previously and how the vegetation is going to change in the future. There's thinking about all right, we we have these more pine spruce forests. Are they going to transition to more like leaf type forests and you know differences in flammability? Wait, so you're saying. You're saying that as these patterns of, as the climate changes, and maybe even as these patterns of lightning strikes and, and fires change, the makeup of the forest may change as a result? Yeah, there, there is thinking, because we know that as fires burn, that is an opportunity for the kind of the, the forest to evolve and to change. It's a, it's a very important part of the natural process of the boreal zone. It's a good, but it's a good question as if we get more fires in the future, how that may change. It's interesting because on the whole, the climate models have been quite accurate over the decades. If anything, they have underestimated the amount of climate change, or at least the rate of climate change, which has been faster than some scientists have anticipated. So I wonder if the way that you and your colleagues are thinking if along the same way is that if anything, you might be underestimating how a warming climate will affect storms and lightning strikes. I think we're definitely on kind of the similar similar page. We, we suspect that a lot of these, in, in the long term, um, where we're kind of underestimating how the climate may warm in the future. 
We've been talking about how lightning can cause fires in Alaska, but here on, on the west coast in California and also north of us, fires can cause lightning. So we have observed the increase in lightning strikes associated with mega wildfires, like those that have been produced in California and in British Columbia, which I believe over the course of four days or so, so saw something like 700,000 bolts of lightning because of those pyrocumulonimbus clouds, those fire clouds, and this intense heat created in these mega wildfires. The, the common thread here is hotter temperatures. That's right. That's definitely the case. I mean, and here, you know, when, when we have hotter conditions here, you know, we have much drier fuels and much greater fire danger. And that, that's an important element of this. So, you know, you need the ignitions from the lightning and you need the, the dry fuel conditions to get the fire going, get the spread going. Well, finally, Peter, maybe it comes down to that that one line joke, everyone talks about the weather, but nobody does anything about it. Uh, you are studying climate and you're studying lightning. If you can track and predict storms that produce lightning, can we do something about it? Well, I think immediately in Alaska, um, because wildfire up here is managed by you know the federal government, the state, there's a whole bunch of different players involved trying to understand how wildfire works, an immediate impact would be those guys would have more information to work with, uh, the fire management community. And that would be, you know, that would be really great. As I said, there's a lot of research going on right now, different, different aspects of trying to forecast lightning up here that we hope we can kind of get there. But the fire management community having forecasts, is that, that's really important for them. Because in Alaska, it's one of those things that we share resources between Alaska and also the lower 48 states. So understanding, you know, where the lightning's going to be, where the fires are going to be, you know, who's who's going to have it worse, or, or are they both going to have it worse at the same time? It's a good thing for them to help balance those resources. Well, Peter Bienyuk, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Peter Bienyuk is a researcher and professor at the University of Alaska Fairbanks and the International Arctic Research Center. So, Seth, that brings us to the big picture in this show about lightning. What are your thoughts? Well, it seems possible that climate change will simply result in more storms, which means more lightning. And there's good news and bad news when it comes to more lightning. I mean, you know, the good news is we get more nitrogen into the soil. The plants will appreciate that. The bad news is we get more wildfires and occasional accidents. And what happens when you have more wildfires, for example, in the Arctic, he said, in the boreal forest, it burns organic material, you release more carbon into the air, and you end up with a positive feedback loop because then you warm the atmosphere more and you create more storms and more storms and more lightning. That's right. We said at the beginning of the show that although we've been studying lightning for 200 years or more, there are still some things we don't know about it. What, what are some of those basic questions that we have yet to answer? Well, what I heard from uh, Martin and Ackerman was that they still aren't able to predict precisely, you know, which storms are going to produce 
a lot of lightning or not so much lightning. You know, the, the details of prediction are still not in hand. We understand what causes lightning, but we still don't understand the details of how that happens so that we can predict, you know, that, well, there's going to be a storm tomorrow night and it's going to be particularly dangerous in terms of lightning. We, we can't do that yet. However, they have improved that lightning sensor network in Alaska, and that is collecting more data about when lightning does strike, and that is helping us build models, climate models, and future forecasts. Of course, I guess all forecasts are future. Well, indeed. And also, the fact that we have satellites looking down at the year 24-7, that's a good way to monitor lightning on a worldwide scale, something that we really couldn't have done in the past. In particular, you know, storms over the ocean, so forth. You, you didn't always know about those. Well, Although our, our ability to track and, and predict lightning is getting better, lightning can still strike suddenly, as we heard in the show. So if a thunderstorm is brewing, you hear the thunder, you know that there's lightning, you want to get inside. This show would not be possible without the quick work and bright talent of senior producer Gary Niederhoff and assistant producers Shannon Rose Geary and Brian Edwards. I am the executive producer of Big Picture Science, Molly Bentley. Thanks also to financial support from NASA. Big Picture Science is produced at the SETI Institute, a nonprofit education and research organization whose efforts include studying the atmospheres of other worlds. I'm the Institute's senior astronomer, Seth Shostak. Also, a big thanks to our listeners and our Patreon supporters. The original music in the show is by Dewey DeLay and June Miyake. This episode of Big Picture Science, which looks at the nature of lightning and how storms that produce it may be changing, is called Like Lightning. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts.